So in summary, we have four documents recently released. We've got some draft changes to Division 7A, which in some sense make UPEs to companies simpler because the options are more limited, but in another sense make them much more complicated given the timing of when that UPE arises with the note that generally people will use the calculation method and not quantify UPEs in fixed figures. We've then got a specific alert about a specific situation where children are purportedly reimbursing their parents for expenses under 18, which the ATO says is no-go. And then we have a ruling and a PCG which talk about various scenarios and whether they are definitely okay, definitely not okay, or raise some question marks. For the most part, the ones that are okay and the ones that are definitely not okay are not particularly controversial in my opinion. The area where, where there's grey and vagueness is on situations where they haven't definitively expressed a view that the arrangement is a problem, but they've suggested that some factors in some arrangements could suggest that it's being done for tax avoidance. And I think that's the area where there's concern. If you're in that situation, you may need to get advice. The simplest way to avoid issues is just to pay present entitlements. If you pay them, you don't have a problem. If they're unpaid and they're to people on not the top tax rate, then you've, you need to think about whether you've got a, either a Section 100A problem or some other problem like a Part 4A problem. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 340 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, we focused on TD 2022-D1 and more specifically on the Division 7A issue around UPEs. Today, let's talk about the other three publications, Taxpayer Alert TA 2022-1, Taxation Ruling TR 2022-D1, and Practical Compliance Guideline PCG 2022-D1. These three publications focus on reimbursement arrangements around Section 108. Well, let's put the Division 7A to a side now. Let's focus on 100A because all the other documents are about 100A and, and whether or not we can distribute to college kids. So the first comment There hasn't been any cases that have come out. There's no change in law. So there's, there's no change in legislation. The legislation has basically stayed the same. And there hasn't been any cases other than an unfavorable case, which is on appeal. This Guardian. Yes, Guardian. So, so in other words, this is not in response to legislation and it's not in response to a case. So the law hasn't changed. Maybe the interpretation has changed. I think there was always a problem with some arrangements, but I think most people's arrangements, well, maybe not most, but a lot of arrangements should be unaffected by these. It really depends what you were doing beforehand. So it's probably best to go through the tax alert to explain one thing people, some people were doing and the ATO's views on that. So we've got tax alert 2022-1 and in the pretext to taxpayer alerts, the point of them is to basically for the ATO to flag things that they consider high risk that, that they're observing. And they've got a pro forma statement at the, at, the, at the start of them, which says, alerts provide a summary of our concerns about new or emerging 
higher risk tax or superannuation arrangements or issues that we have under risk assessment. So focus on those words, new or emerging. They see something, see people doing things, something, they don't like it, they issue an alert. What they're describing and these things about adult children have happened since the dawn of trusts. It's not something new or emerging, I don't think. So with that point out of the way, I'll explain what the situation that this alert is getting at. So this is getting at situations where discretionary trust is controlled by adults, parents, just call them the parents, and it has income, significant income coming through the trust. The parents have children, and those children are at the time of the present entitlements, they're at least 18 years old, because if they were under 18, there's no point distributing to them unless it's a testamentary trust anyway. And what people were doing was they were making present entitlements to the children, typically up to the 180,000 tax, uh, taxable amount. Now children didn't have other income because they're in university or their income was quite low if they're doing a, a casual job or something like that. And then this is the important part. The present entitlements were either being built up or they were being, they were being applied. And the thing that they were being applied against was the parents would say to the ch children, oh, you know, those, you know those family holidays that we went on? when you're a child under 18, you're going to have to pay for those. You know, there's private school fees. Uh, you're going to have to pay for those, either through the parents saying you have to, or what's probably more accurate, the children voluntarily choosing, oh, you know, mum and dad, you're really good to us. So I don't want you to be out of pocket for my, my private school fees, you know, my tuitions and things like that. I'm going to, I'm going to repay you for that. And oh, look, just so happens that I've got this present entitlement sitting here. That's the situation that's, I'm being a little bit facetious, but that's the situation that's described in tax alert. So the, the entitlements are never paid, or if they are paid, they're paid and then transferred to the parents. Yes, and that would be about a lot of money because private school education, if you go all the way through, would be easily half a million dollars. If you then distribute 180,000 each year, you can go for at least five years if my maths are right, no, my maths are wrong. You can go for two and a half years and uh, pay for that. But I'm sure then after that comes the uh, comes university. That also is another half a million. And then after that, it probably becomes something else. And there's a few things to keep in mind here with, with, with an arrangement along these lines. Firstly, someone who's aged under 18 generally doesn't have the capacity to enter into contracts and enter into obligations. So in other words... You know, from a legal perspective and probably even from a moral perspective anyway, the children have no obligation to pay their parents back for these expenses. It wasn't, it was never raised with them that, oh, you know, it's private school fees, you're going to have to pay them back. Yes, and childcare. Yeah. So, and then the yes, reality is the only reason that they're being paid is because of income from a trust. It's not like, oh, if you went out and got your own job, you're going to have to pay those or, or anyone would choose to actually repay these. So, I, I can see that there is a bit of artificiality to this this situation where you say, okay, children, you're you're presently entitled. Oh, you just so happen to agree to to pay that to us because you know we looked after you until you were 18. Yeah, so the money doesn't actually stay in the trust. The money is paid out, but it's paid out to the parents as a repayment of of those items we we listed. Yeah. 
Well, either the money stays in the trust or it goes to the parents, but what happens is there's no entitlement left for the children and they've never received the money in reality. They might have received it and gifted it. They might have gifted their present entitlement. They might have allowed their uh, uh, the trust. They might have forgiven the, the present entitlement. Whichever way you slice and dice it, they haven't got the money at the end of the day. So this is what TA, Taxpayer Alert 2022-1, is about. And that is not in draft, correct? That's actually already a, a full proper taxpayer alert. The other things are still all in draft. They are all D1, but this one is already fully issued, correct? Yeah, this is fully issued and will apply straight away. Can I just quickly ask you a question? When I was talking about college kids before, you said it's a lot wider than that. And I agree it's a lot wider. It also includes spouses and it includes any family members who have a tax bracket of lower than 47%. But I can imagine it wouldn't go much further than that, correct? Because with any company, you're stuck at 30% anyway. So I think it would be limited to those family groups, don't you think? Yeah, or other family members. But this alert is talking about adult children. Uh, it does make a comment that they're also concerned about similar arrangements involving other family members. Maybe it's a nephew or an uncle. or Basically, is there someone who's paid less tax than 47% but hasn't got the benefit really from that money? Yes, but it's always about people. These whole constructions are basically never about interposed entities and I don't know what, you know, foreign trust or whatsoever. Might have it on the side, but it really is always in the end income coming down to certain individuals who have lower tax rates. In the end, it always comes down to people. Yeah, well, for the alert, it does. The, 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 the PCG and the ruling talk about some company and trust examples, but for the, at, at its simplest and for the alert, It's talking about individuals only, and it's only relevant to individuals. Okay. The first what you mentioned, that is what I'm after. This construction where you can have companies or trusts and do some funny business. Can you tell me what that would look like in a, in a simplified way? I mean, the only way you can do funny business with company and trust is basically that in a company you can park the income And so just tax it at 30% and leave it there until your other tax rates are lower? Or well, I'll go, through, I'll go through the examples in the TR. The tax alert does distinguish between arrangements where someone is over 18. And example three is, is, is the example it gives where someone's in university, they've got tuition fees and they're living with grandma and they're paying some arm's length board to, to grandma. And in that situation... The trust makes the uni student presently entitled and parents or someone in the family has already paid that board and uni fees. And they agree that the UPE is going to be offset against those. So they say that that's okay. Basically, they say that that's okay. Reading between the lines, they say that that's okay because these fees are arm's length and the person is over 18. And it would usually, well, sometimes be expected that adult children depending on the family, I guess, that adult children in a full fee-paying course would actually pay those fees and it's not, it's not like secondary school or you know, childcare or whatever. So they do distinguish on whether someone's over 18 or under 18. The last comment with the alert, so the two last comments with the alert, they pepper the alert with a lot of comments like, you know, we're also concerned about other arrangements, if this fact is present, things like that. So They've given this very contrived example, but there's concerns that it could go a lot further than that. There's also a comment that there's a serious note about 
the prospect of promoter penalties applying to people who participate uh, and promoters of, of these type of arrangements. And even that registered tax agents that are involved may be re referred to the Tax Practitioners Board to consider whether there's been a breach of the TASA. So there's some fairly strong comments in, in the alert. That would affect a lot of tax agents. If your situation is one where money's paid to the people who are presently entitled, you're generally not going to have a problem. Okay, yeah, because that was going to be my comment. I mean, that's what trusts are about. Trusts are about income splitting. Otherwise, what's the point of a trust? Apart from asset protection, what's the point of a trust? It is to split income. But yes, you're right. As long as you split the income, but then you pay it out, you're okay. But if you split the income and then you don't even pay it out, then you basically have pushed your luck a bit too far. Yeah. So the ruling in the PCG... The ruling is, is more technical, but it provides a number of examples. And then the PCG provides further examples and it distinguishes between uh, different risk weightings. And to make it a little bit confusing, the zones are white zone, which is the, the safest, green zone. We then go to blue zone and then we go to red zone. I would think if it's a traffic light system, blue should be amber. It's kind of confusing because I think blue and I think, oh, you know, it's an ocean, a sea of tranquility. It's all it's all okay. But um, uh, <laughs> they've, they've taken a slightly different color coding to this risk assessment. Yes. So it's white, green, blue, red? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a bit strange, isn't it? Yeah. I guess white is meant to be zero, you know, as in no color. So that, that makes sense. And then they should have made it orange instead of blue. Orange would be fine as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll jump between now the examples in both just to pick on the particular scenarios. So in general, they provide certain examples of things that are okay. And I would describe what they say is okay is extremely vanilla and that almost no advisor would think that there's a problem with basically. And then they provide examples of things that they don't like. And then they, they, they add in comments to say that we're also concerned about this other situation that's not as bad as this example. And I think the real area that's left as a question mark is those sort of statements. So, you know, no one was really that concerned with things that they say, okay, because sort of, sort of assumed that those were okay. And the things that, were, that they say are high risk in general, they're very artificial and I would personally have a problem with them. It's the grey in between. So, for example, example four of the ruling, it firstly talks about a situation where we've got a discretionary trust and we've got a child who's Pauline. She's a full-time student. She's made presently entitled to income and she gifts her entitlement back to the trustee. So made presently entitled, gifts it back to the trustee. And that might be done year on year as well. So they say that that sort of situation appears to be artificial and contrived and just involves the trustee and beneficiaries acting to achieve a particular tax outcome. So and in general, I, I think that's probably a fair comment to say. If it's just, you know, gifted straight back straight afterwards, then clearly this is all done just to, just to soak up some tax. They then make comments about other factors that they would indicate that the dealing more closely exhibits tax avoidance than an ordinary dealing. And in this example, they say 
So instead of just gifting the entitlements back, the trustee loans money to the parents on interest-free terms for an undefined period. So just to give you an example of what that would look like, trustee has 100,000 of income, resolves to make Pauline presently entitled to 100,000. Trustee has $100,000 in its bank account. And instead of paying the money to Pauline, it lends it interest-free to the parents. Nothing else is done. There's not a forgiveness. There's not a gifting of entitlement. That's all that's done. They say that that indicates that it may more closely exhibit tax avoidance. So that's probably the big issue because it's a lot more common to have these present entitlements build up over time, for example. They may not be all paid you know, the day after and the money may be used by someone else in the family in the meantime. So I think that's the real area where, now the ATO is not saying that is a, they're not saying that that's like a red red zone or that we think that that is not permissible, but they're, they're sort of dangling the carrot sort of on it and saying that, you know, we don't, we don't like that factor. So it's like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean it's not okay? Is it okay? I think that's where the real confusion lies. But so it's okay if Pauline doesn't see the money for many years, as long as at some stage she sees it. So if after 15 years or so it's paid out to her, then it's okay. Well, I mean, the ATO is saying no. Well, potentially no. They're saying if someone's made presently entitled, but the money is lent to someone else interest-free for an undefined period, it's a problem. Okay, good. Because I was thinking if what I had said was correct, then you could just go your merry way. And if the ATO ever raises it as an issue, then you say, oh, oops, sorry, we just pay it, we pay it out now. Mm. And that's a really difficult one because uh, it, I personally think it's very hard to establish unless there's evidence to show that it was never intended that these are paid. And keep in mind, the taxpayer has the onus of proof. Unless it's sort of taxpayers never intended to pay, you know, they were dishonest, something like that, then, I mean, I question whether that's correct or not. If, if, if it's intended that it's been, going to be paid out at some point in time, yeah, I question whether the ATO's view is correct. They're not saying that that's definitely their view. They're saying that it's an issue. Is it a problem that there's no interest and that there's no paperwork? So could you make it work by having paperwork and officially charging some interest and then you just keep the money in the trust for the next 15 years? Yeah, so the ATO do make a comment that if the trust lent the money on terms equivalent to Section 109N, and we're not talking about companies here, but on terms equivalent to what Section 109N says, then that will be okay because essentially people are being compensated for that. What about salaries? So let's say you have a company that runs a business and it pays a salary to college kids. I can imagine that's a lot harder for the ATO to attack because then they would have to show that it wasn't actually a true work arrangement, that it was just to distribute income, correct? I can imagine that is a safer scenario. They'd have to go down a different route to attack it. They wouldn't be able to attack it under Section 100A. They'd probably have to attack something like that on the basis that it was a sham or they never actually worked in the business part for a something like they couldn't use this provision because it's not it's not a present entitlement. Okay, so 100A is just about present entitlements. 100A is not about dubious wages being paid to college kids. No, no, no. So in terms of the the, the question you asked about how companies could be involved and how people could do funny things. 
probably the best example of this is example eight and example nine of the ruling. So example eight refers to a situation where there's a very big difference between the ordinary income and the trust law income of the trust and the taxable income of the trust. So the facts of this example are that you have a discretionary trust which owns all the shares in a company and the company has some retained earnings. It has $2 of paid up capital and $70,000 of retained earnings. Yes, and the three income categories you just listed were ordinary income, tax income and trust income. And tax income is clear, but what's the difference between ordinary income and trust income? I think ordinary income doesn't include capital gains, correct? Yeah, yeah. So ordinary income, I mean income according to ordinary concepts, which is basically not including capital gains. And trust income is what the deed says. So it could be either of those, or it could be something else entirely, subject to the ATO accepting that that could be what trust income is. Good. And if all three say the same, then we don't have an issue. We have an issue when all the three categories come up with a different number. Yeah, essentially. So the situation that they give is uh, we have a trust which owns shares in a company and the company has retained earnings. Now, the company could just declare a dividend to its shareholder. The tax consequences are pretty straightforward from that. But it doesn't do that. It does something else. Instead, they agree that the company will buy back shares from the trust. Essentially, it will buy back all the shares from the trust. So it's $70,002. So you might think, well, what does that do? How is that any different? So the buyback will still be treated almost all as a dividend anyway, as the rules that, that treat sort of returns of capitals as, as dividends when it's, it's from retained earnings. But the difference is that the buyback amount is not ordinary income. From an income according to ordinary concepts perspective, it's a, it's a amount of capital, despite the tax law saying it's, it's treated as income anyway. So in this example, the trust deed is amended so that the income of the trust state is determined according to ordinary concepts for, for the year in question. So they do an amendment to the deed or they use the power in the deed to say, Income of the trust estate is ordinary concepts. And then when they're looking at their figures, well, the amount from ordinary concepts is $2. Oh, sorry. And, and they also have a $10,000 of interest income, which comes in as well. So the amount of ordinary income is $10,000 from the interest income. And the rest of it is not ordinary income. So what we do is we have another company and we resolve to make that company presently entitled to 100% of the income of the trust estate being $10,000. So trust needs to pay to other company 10 grand and it does so. From a tax perspective though, the other company is assessed on 100% of the net taxable income of the trust. And we'll get the franking credits and so forth as they flow across. But so that means this other company has to pay tax on the buyback? Well, there's franking credits in the example. So there's not even any tax on the buyback because the franking credits will just flow across. 
the obligation on the trust is to pay $10,000 to the new company. So then well, what's happened with the rest of the money? The rest of the money sits in the trust. It doesn't have to go anywhere. In the example, there's then a capital distribution or loan or whatever it is to the individuals. So we've effectively bypassed Division 7A and effectively do it by, like we've lumped the tax on the company with the franking credits, but the actual cash has gone somewhere else. So essentially what you've done is the reason that this is created is because there's a difference between trust law income and taxable income. All the taxable income has been pushed to a company. The cash hasn't really gone to the company, but the franking credits have. So the other company doesn't need to pay any tax. And the actual money is basically extracted tax-free. And that worked until now? Or that already was barred by 100A, but it was more complicated and less clear. And so these rulings now try to make it clearer? Uh, this, this was never permitted under any view of, of either 100A or Part 4A. Like this is clearly straight up done based on these facts. This, this is never allowed and there's no dispute over that. You've got a situation where you could have just declared a dividend, first of all. The reason that you've got this arbitrage is because you've gone to the extra steps of doing a return of capital. You've then varied your deed and specifically stated that it's ordinary concepts for this particular year, set up another company, made it presently entitled, and then pulled the money out. You can see a lot of things wrong with this example. But it is quite clever. It's clever if it works. But the ACO is saying that they could apply 100A to this situation. And, and I think regardless of whether they could apply 100A to this situation, I think it's it would be clear um, part for A territory for this, for this example. The thing that's less clear, though, is that this is a very artificial arrangement where there's a series of steps taken to get to this situation. You could have other situations where there's a difference between trust law income and, and taxable income that isn't because of something this artificial. Just to take a simple example, instead of this whole return of capital mess, just say the trust made a capital gain and the, 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 it has a wide power to define income. Let's just say it already has income defined as ordinary concepts, just to take it even further. Well, in that situation, if something similar to this was done, not, not exactly the same, but, but somewhat similar, you know, the real question, well, would that be covered? And that isn't discussed in any of these documents. I'm sorry, you already explained this five times and I still haven't got it. Reimbursement arrangements were never really allowed under 100A. The only thing that the um, rulings now change is the subtrust and the timing. The scenario you just described was never allowed. So what do the rulings actually change apart from that they cut out the subtrust, that they change the timing? I think the main, so, so I mean, when you say never allowed, it's important to know there wasn't really much guidance on this section beforehand of what it covered at all. So when I say never allowed, I mean, my view was that section 100A or part 4A would apply to those situations anyway, despite the ATO not saying anything particular about those situations. Okay, so that means these rulings don't really change anything fundamentally. They tinker a little bit around the edges with subtrust and timing, but they 
apart from that, they really just clarify. Yeah, and they throw a few bombs out and question marks about situations which I would have thought are, are possibly okay, but they're questioning whether they are. And that's when I gave you the example of the adult children who are made presently entitled and the money is used by someone else, but it will be paid eventually to those to those children. They're throwing question marks and bombs out about that situation, which they're not answering them, um, which is a question of whether that's helpful or not at all. I guess there's probably maybe more uncertainty now, or at least the ATO is looking more carefully at those arrangements. They are subject to higher risk now than was previously understood. So that's probably the main takeaway. So some things that were probably never allowed or had serious problems with anyway, they've confirmed that. Other things they've put comments out saying, you know, we've got concern about this factor, but then they haven't resolved it. And then they haven't gone through some of the more nuanced situations, like the example I gave where there's a mismatch between um, trust law income and net income, not because of something artificial that's done, just because of, you know, how it is, which again, they haven't, haven't answered. The other situation that, that, that's covered by this is what's called the washing machine arrangement. <laughs> Did the ATO call it that way? Yeah, I think it's been called that in the ATO document. Certainly outside of that, it's, it's referred to as a washing machine arrangement. Sorry, they refer to it as a circular flow of funds in the ruling. Okay, yes. It's the yes. same thing. Does it have to do with laundering, money laundering? No, it has nothing to do with that, but it has to do with the circularity. So it, it, it's actually quite simple to explain. Um, you have a trust which owns 100% of the shares in a company and the trust has income in year one. The trust resolves to pay that income, make the company presently entitled to that income. And then in year two, the trust declares a dividend to, sorry, the company declares a dividend to the trust. The trust then makes the company presently entitled to that money again. In year three, the company declares a dividend to the trust and so on. We just keep going around and around in circles. Trust the company, company to trust. We keep going around, the money never actually goes any well. Sorry, the, the tax can be indefinitely deferred. And the money could be used by someone else in the meantime or by the trust, but you're deferring any tax from the arrangement. It's like a yes. washing machine that you just forget to turn off. It just keeps going. And it is circular like that because of the franking credits, because when the company distributes to the trust, the franking credits come with it. So then the... Uh, trust distributes that income and the franking credits go with the income again back to the company and so it goes around. Yeah, correct. So th that was already known that the ATO had some issues with that type of arrangement. It's worth noting that the case of Guardian did concern a washing machine type arrangement and the ATO lost that case. Uh, so our question whether it's the right time to release something like this, particularly in that scenario when there's a case that's been lost and it's on appeal. But nevertheless, the ATO's view and still through the appeal is that they consider 100A would apply to the arrangement in Guardian and, and washing machine arrangements more generally. And the washing machine arrangements, you can defer. It doesn't actually go away because when you move this income of, let's say, 100,000 
backwards and forwards in this circular movement, it's never going away. It's still there. And if you do this every year, it, it will accumulate. After 10 years, you will have a million dollars going through this circle. Correct? It doesn't go away. You just defer the tax basically. One day, the money would have to come out. Yeah, yeah, it's a deferral. For example, when, for example, when the trust vests. Yeah, it's a deferral, yeah. So are we through order? Is there still more to Look, come? there's other examples and variants on those, but th those are really the main examples. There's, there's situations concerning the college student example that you gave, which could either be if they're over 18, but it's purportedly applied to things where they're under 18. There's a big red flag on those things. If they're an adult children, there's a question mark on those if it's not paid straight away. The same thing can be said for elderly parents or other situations. Basically, if there's someone with lower financial means that's been presently entitled to reduce tax, but they haven't been paid the money, there's, there's an issue possibly with those. They then give the examples of the very sort of extreme, I'll call them, manipulation of trust law income and taxable income and then the washing machine arrangement that's the real main thrust of and there's about 10 or 15 examples in the in the pcg and the ruling so probably not worth going through all of them but they're all variants on those three or four scenarios so in summary we have four documents recently released we've got some draft changes to Division 7A, which in some sense make UPEs to companies simpler because the options are more limited, but in another sense make them much more complicated given the timing of when that UPE arises with the note that generally people will use the calculation method and not quantify UPEs in fixed figures. We've then got a specific alert about a specific situation where uh, children are purportedly reimbursing their parents for expenses under 18, which the ATO says is no-go. And then we have a ruling and a PCG which talk about various scenarios and whether they are definitely okay, definitely not okay, or raise some question marks. For the most part, the ones that are okay and the ones that are definitely not okay are not particularly controversial in my opinion. The area where, where there's grey and vagueness is on situations where they haven't definitively expressed a view that the arrangement is a problem, but they've suggested that some factors in some arrangements could suggest that it's being done for tax avoidance. And I think that's the area where there's concern. If you're in that situation, you may need to get advice. The simplest way to avoid issues is just to pay present entitlements. If you pay them, you don't have a problem. If they're unpaid and they're to people on not the top tax rate, then you've, you need to think about whether you've got a, either a Section 100A problem or some other problem like a Part 4A problem. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that. And I, I didn't even go through like, you know, the criteria to apply Section 100A because it's not worth, I don't think it's worth people's time to go through it because it's so they're such hard concepts and they're not even certain what they mean anyway. So I think it's better to explain practically what people are doing, what's okay, what's not. Welcome back. So it might become more difficult to use trust to split income without actually paying the income to those beneficiaries. 
In the next episode, episode 341, let's talk with Damien Lehman of NJF Lawyers in Sydney about non-executive directors. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.